some of this conversation goes quite deep. So if any of the themes discussed in this episode trigger you in any way, or if you need someone to talk to, please call Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to Exceptionally Average, the podcast that shares the real and inspiring stories of normal everyday people. I'm your host, Ashley Mason, and today, boy, do I have an inspiring story for you. I want you to meet Kate Hansen. Kate is an organ donation recipient and passionate advocate for organ donation in Australia. She featured on a documentary film called Dying to Live, which follows the heart-wrenching stories of real people awaiting life-saving organs. Hearing her tell her story in real life for me today was as real and as raw as it gets. We talk about life, death and everything in between. She started the conversation off mic with apologising in advance. As a result of her brain injury, she sometimes stutters her words or uses the wrong words completely, but she absolutely did not need to apologise because every minute that I spent with her for over two hours, I was hanging off every word that she said. She's an amazing and inspiring woman, and I'm so excited for you to meet her too. Without further ado, let's get into it. Here's Kate. Kate, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. I've been so excited to meet you and interview you. Um, I thought we'd start with something really simple. How are you today? I'm feeling good. Yeah. I'm a little tired. Yeah. I had a biopsy two days ago. I was going to say, we, so we meant to record this episode a couple of days ago and Kate messaged in the morning, said she was going to the hospital. I was like, that's absolutely fine. I just hope you're okay. Yeah. So what was going on? Um, I just had some really bad pain. Yeah. And the moment we get pain or a high temperature, being immunocompressed, you have to go straight to the hospital. There's no use or buts. Yeah. That's the first sign of rejection. Yeah. So okay. my transplant is now five months I've been out five months um so my transplant was the 22nd of January yep this year yeah um so I went and had a kidney biopsy because I hadn't had one yet and I should have had one at three months but I was back in hospital being yeah, okay. reopened yeah so wow. I had to get my bowel all fixed and things like that so yep. then they gave me more time to heal yeah um, so and yeah, got the so biopsy done on Friday. Yeah. yeah. So it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was very intimidating. Which I imagine is quite a big thing to say given how much you've been through. Absolutely. And it's funny, you know, because I've been through so much and this is – the biopsy is nothing really compared to some of the things I've had to have done. Yeah. But I think you get to that stage where you're like, how much more? Like, can yeah. you just stop now? Like, how much Absolutely. more? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone thinks, you know, you get a transplant and that's it you're cured but it's it's not it's gives you more time and then there's a lot more responsibility and a lot more things you need to get done in order to maintain that transplant yeah wow what were you like as a kid let's go way back to before transplants and hospitals and biopsies and tell me about young Kate so I was diagnosed when I was three almost four years old with type 1 diabetes Um, my mum's convinced I had it since I was born so I just had so many complications as a child yeah in and out of hospitals and back then diabetes wasn't a real not not that it wasn't a real thing but it wasn't as common as it is now what what year are we talking about how so in 1989 yeah 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 so uh yeah 89 90 yeah was when you were diagnosed yeah yeah it was good friday 
Right. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I actually remember the day, yeah. which is quite unique because I was yeah, only three or four. Old. Yeah. Um, but I remember I had an Easter egg and I was going to bite it. It was Good Friday and my mum whacked it out of my hand <laughs> after getting off the telephone and said, that's it, we're going to hospital. And I just remember crying because I didn't get my Easter egg. <laughs> my sister was eating hers. And um, I still remember like our car pulling out of the driveway and I had started crying because mum said, you're a diabetic. And Beck had no idea. She She's younger than me, so she's mm. just off with the pixies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eating her Easter eggs. Yeah, exactly. And How I did was, that diagnosis come? So my mum was really pushy. The paediatricians and things like that were like, no, she's just a naughty baby because I was always thirsty, demanding drinks, stealing the two-litre milk carton over night time. Yeah. Like I was just constantly thirsty, um, and that was the first sign of diabetes. So my mum just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing, saying, I know something's wrong. Yeah. Um, so finally she did. They took a blood test and about four days later they said get her into the hospital straight away. She's type 1 diabetic. Wow. And I remember the first thing they taught me was how to inject myself. At three? Yeah. So they gave me an orange and a syringe, like an old-style oh, needle. really? And said, here, I practice making smiley faces. Oh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was my training. Wow. <laughs> Same training for my parents. Yeah. Make smiley faces. Don't get the same place twice. Rotate your your sights. Only use the bottom, the legs or the, yeah. or the tummy. Yeah. And I hated getting injections. I can imagine. So by the time I was four, four and a half, I was giving them to myself because I could control the pain. Yeah. So I used to take my injections so slowly. And then throughout the years, everyone was like, you know, the faster you do it, it's like a Band-Aid. It's, it's easier. Yeah. I just didn't believe them. Yeah. So I would control my pain. Yeah. When it's in your own hands, it's, it's easier, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So as a juvenile, I was quite bad. Yeah. Um, especially when I got to high school, I didn't really want to be a diabetic and I was the only person at my school that had diabetes. Yeah. So kids naturally bully you and they say nasty things and, you know, ostracize you and Absolutely. leave you out. So I used to hide the fact I was a diabetic. So I'd yeah. eat and drink what I wanted. I wouldn't take insulin during school hours. So I had a lot of what yeah. they call diabetic ketone acidosis. So that's where you slip into a coma. It's very, wow. very dangerous. Yeah. So um, I had a few, quite a few actually. Episodes, episodes of, that. of that yeah yeah I know I've got a family friend who was recently diagnosed with type 1 and she's a little she was she's older now but she was a little older when she was diagnosed I think she's in her maybe early teens or yeah. something like that tween kind of age um and I know watching her go through the diagnosis it was incredibly hard I suppose it's you were younger so that you didn't know any different exactly. but you still get to high school and you have all the high school pressures and yeah. I suppose particularly as a female um I know there's a whole lot of issues around body image and whatnot when you hit that age anyway, Absolutely. let alone adding into that, that you've got to go and inject yourself during school hours and, and things like then, that. back then they weren't pens and they weren't like fancy looking like they are now. They were yeah. syringes yeah. and there was no, nothing else you could use. So yeah. people would just naturally call you those horrible names, yeah. drug addict, junkie. And wow. then I remember sports class, no one wanted to share drink bottles with me because they thought they could catch it. And That's awful. Yeah, it was awful, but I was very, I was an athlete. 
yeah. all through my teenage years. Yep. Very good cross-country runner and great um, netballer. Yep. Played netball for the state and school. And Did so that start when you were quite young or was it only yeah, when you started, were always quite sporty? I played that from the age of seven. Yep. My mum lied to get me into netball. <laughs> um, so I started playing netball six and a half, seven. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just loved it. Did you always know that you'd need a transplant one day? Yeah, we did because that's the thing with diabetes. You always know, but it wasn't 30 or 40 years till down the track. It wasn't until mm-hmm. I was yeah. had a family married and maybe my 40s or 50s we might look at trying a kidney, just yeah. a kidney. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of an SPK transplant, which is simultaneous pancreas kidney. I'd never heard of it until eight years ago when I got really, really sick and they said, you need a transplant, choose which one suits you. So the SPK uh, means you get a pancreas as well. So it means it cures you from your type 1 diabetes. So you're a young, fit, playing netball, mm-hmm. pretty healthy young girl apart from not controlling your sugars. Yeah. But, you and know, catching um, every single yeah. illness that was going around. So when did, when did that change? So when did it go from being just unwell to needing a transplant? Yes, yeah, so I was 24 years old and I went to Thailand and I came back and I was complaining of swollen legs and I've had blood clots in the past. Um, I kept going to my doctors and because I have a history and a family history of clots, Mm. I was automatically sent for scans. You know, it's got to be a clot. It's got to be a clot. But I would start the day in my high heels at work. I used to work for VCAT. Mm -hmm. So I was in King Street every day doing real estate stuff. And uh, by the end of the day, I couldn't wear my shoes because they were so swollen. And I just kept on going to different doctors. I was not satisfied with Mm. what they were saying. So initially they thought that I had found some illness in Thailand mm. that they they quarantined me in Sunshine Hospital for 20 days because oh. they thought I had an infectious disease. They couldn't explain. I'd come back with like flu-like symptoms as yeah, well. Yeah. So my mum works for Peninsula Health in the pharmacy mm. and I had called her and said, mum, my sight's going bad again. I'm hemorrhaging under the eyes. And I'm like, I have to get glasses, mum. My eyes are really bad and they're, they're talking about laser to try and fix the blood vessels from hemorrhaging, yeah. which is what was happening. Yeah. So the blood was pooling at the bottom of my eyes and making everything hazy. Mm. So she was on the phone repeating what I was saying and the doctor at the hospital was listening and he actually scribbled on a piece of paper and said, go get her kidneys checked. Wow, and that's how it happened. Yeah. So I got my bloods taken and sure enough, I was in renal failure and I had absolutely no idea. So I don't know how long I had been in renal failure. Yeah, and all those doctors that you'd seen all said it was blood clots. So it was about 18 months of me going around going, this isn't right, like I can't wear shoes and it's only Mm. the one leg. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I can understand why they thought it was because they'd had clots before, but, yeah, no one one thought to look it up. So, yeah, I was doctor shopping and then I I got the blood test and seen Dr. Flank down in Frankston. Yeah. So I would just travel to Frankston to see him. So 2012, he's like, I think we should really look at possibly getting a transplant in the next two years. And I'm like, oh, okay. So the, at that time I was just monitoring myself. Mm-hmm. I had about 35% function mm-hmm. of my kidneys. So um, that's the thing with renal failure. People don't know they're in renal failure until they get in the low In tens. really bad, yeah. Yeah. So, and it affects everybody. So you still go to the toilet so you don't think anything's wrong. Mm. Um, but it affects like one in three Australians are affected by some form of kidney problems. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. That's the a really high statistic. That's scary. Yeah. People walking around have absolutely no idea. So yeah, I was in the low 30s. 
um, which meant I was just medicated, mm-hmm. didn't need dialysis. Mm-hmm. And that was the December of 2012. So at that point, things were looking good. You're thinking, you know, I'll just keep managing it and I'll I'll get on the transplant list. I was still working. Yeah. um, Had a partner, was living in the western suburbs still. um, And then in March, me and my partner broke up and I had an episode with my heart and I was sitting at Werribee Hospital and they said, you need to go to the Alfred, we can't where you don't have the equipment to look after this issue. Mm. So my heart was just very, very fast, but skipping a beat too, Mm. so it was out of rhythm. And once I got to the Alfred, they were phenomenal. They did every test you could imagine. I was there for two or three days just getting test after test after test, and then I had this this gorgeous doctor come in and tell me that he sat on the end of my bed and he held my hand and he goes, you're in really bad renal failure. You've dropped down to about 20%. In what time? How long did it take you to go from 30 to 20? Four months. Wow. Yeah, and I had no idea. And he goes, you're now at 20%. This is where we start thinking about transplant. So that was in March of mm-hmm. 2013. Yeah. And, and I know at some point there was a car accident. When, yes. When does that fit into things? October. Oh, sorry, November. Melbourne Cup year? Day, November 2013. We decided to have a barbecue. So I went and put everyone's bets on. And I went and grabbed the cheese and cabana and I was driving literally down this one main road in Mornington that goes from Mornington to Mount Martha and the pub was on one end and mum's house was on the other. And I was about halfway down that road going through a roundabout and I had a massive seizure. So I went up and over the roundabout into a light pole and, and then the light pole fell on the school. Why the seizure? So it was caused by a syndrome called PRES, which is P-R-E-S, mm-hmm. posterior reversible encephalopathy. Um, Did was, you know you had that no, before that? No. So it masks itself. I had just had the flu, so I was getting over influenza A. Um, so its signs are neurological. Like I would trip over, I would try and grab a pen, but I'd grab the knife. I was just doing silly things and mm. I was very weak. And I remember that day very significantly because I was walking around Safeways holding my head as if I couldn't, I didn't have the strength to hold it up by myself. So I had my hand around my neck and I'm holding my head and I'm like, I don't feel right. Like what's going on? And I put my bets on and I jumped in my car, plugged in my iPod, went for the drive, which is maybe a three minute drive and had the massive seizure. And luck, luckily there were witnesses. So the witness got to see family actually seen me have a seizure called the police the police rang mum mum's like oh it can't be bad she's on that she's around the corner like literally around the corner and so my mum and my sister jumped in the car weren't expecting to see what they saw um they got there and they I don't remember any of this um they said that I was awake but I wasn't I was whining like a little girl the police thought I was drunk um and obviously I wasn't hadn't even had a drink um, and then a, what they call a super doctor came, a super paramedic. So you've got your, your micro teams, which are the specialist intensive care yep. ambos, and then you've got what they call a super doctor, and he rides a motorbike. It's I've never heard of it I've before. I've never heard of that. No, not many people have, <laughs> um, but he's top of the range. Yeah. I couldn't ask for anyone better. He sedated me, said they were taking me to Frankston, and I was in there for a few hours and he came back out and he said, I'm putting into an induced coma. She's massive. She has massive head injuries. 
And they're like, she was only going maybe 20, 30 Ks. Like, yeah. how's this possible? So no one knew I had press at this this moment. And when I did have that accident, I had done what we call a day fill. So I had a belly full of fluid as well and no one knew. So yeah. when I was put into the coma, which was only supposed to be 24, 48 hours, so they could just relax me and figure everything out, lasted for 12 days, I wouldn't wake up. So it got to a stage where they're like, you might have to think about turning off the machines, worst case scenario. Um, and by this stage, I've been being transferred to the Alfred. The Alfred were taking care of me. And, uh, yeah, so I was in the coma there. They were saying to my parents, you know, it's not looking good. She won't wake up. Do you – I? it's probably a silly question, but I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to ask someone that's been in a coma. Can you hear, Do you hear what's people? going on around you? You can hear – I have – Snippets. Yeah. I know that my dad was sitting there saying, if you don't wake up, I'm going to burn all your shoes because I'm addicted <laughs> to shoes and handbags. I oh, know that my si- Yeah. I know my sister was sitting there pulling my ears. And I can remember my sister was playing the Amity Affliction. And I used to hate the Amity Affliction because it's a, a screamer band. I love that everyone was just trying to wake up with Becky really yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like trying to frustrate me. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, while they were all doing that, so yes, you can absolutely, yeah. you don't know it verbatim what people yeah, are saying, yeah. but you have, but you have flashbacks. And you have memories of this. Yeah. So you can remember it. Yeah. And then, yeah, they said to mum and dad, if she does wake up, she's she's not going to be right. She's going to probably not be able to walk or talk. And is this all because at that point, like, do they know about the press at this point either no. or are they still just assuming this is all from the accident? Yeah. yeah. So I did a lot of internal damage because two or three days into my coma, my mum remembered that I'd had had a day fill and I had damaged my spleen, my liver, um, put a hole in my diaphragm, kidney pancreas, did a lot of damage because I had that fluid there that no one knew about. Mm. Um, so my mum remembered and, you know, I had PD, they did that. Um, when you're in a corona, coma, you're actually getting dialysis, hemodialysis through mm. the machines, like the mm-hmm. central lines and that anyway, because mm. yeah. you're not going to the toilet yeah. when you're in a yeah. coma. Um, so, yeah, so they were doing that. And then in the meantime, the doctors were sending my scans all overseas to different hospitals. They had no idea what was going on. And then one of them came back, I think from the UK, I'm not entirely sure, and they said, She's got a syndrome called PRESS, posterior reversible encapulopathy. So that basically means the left side of my brain is swollen, but it's supposed to reverse after six to ten weeks. And it's very common in women and people who are chronically ill. So those the me tripping over wasn't the flu. It was I was cognitively affected because mm. my brain was so swollen. And was that a side effect? Like did that come along with all the diabetes and the, the kidney failure? Is yeah. that Where that came from? Yeah. So it's high blood pressure. Mm. And I used to sit in the 200s, sometimes up to 280, 290, just blood pressure. Wow. Because my kidneys weren't working. So I wasn't getting any fluids out. And yeah, the blood pressure was a huge issue for many, many years Mm. um, and caused a lot of issues. What happened after you woke up from the coma? I remember the day that I was. So apparently my sister was sitting there and she kept on saying, Kate, wake up, like, <laughs> wake up. And my sister doesn't come to hospitals when people are sick. She's That's not her style. She just can't do it. And she was sitting there and apparently she said, or mum said, Kate, Beck's here. And I opened one eye and I looked at her for 15 seconds and I closed it. 
And they, they all started screaming, going, she has open her eye. And it wasn't just a, when you're in a coma, you can make funny movements mm. and the doctors and nurses do warn, warn, warn the family that those movements aren't necessarily the involuntary. Yeah. It's not her doing it. Yeah. So don't expect miracles. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I did that on the 12th day, I remember the nurses when I had my breathing tube pulled out, mm. I was so thirsty. And my dad just kept on running and getting Gatorades because I used to love <laughs> orange Gatorade. So I would drink it and then I'd want one more and then want another one. And then they're like, oh, you don't have to worry about going to the toilet. You've got a catheter. And that freaked me out because I hate gardens. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so the nurse said to me, would you like, because I was so out of it and mm. was imagining rabbits on the ceiling. Did you know that you'd been out for that long? No, or? I had no idea. And no one said what had happened. <gasps> but the nurse handed me a Turkish delight because it was the lead up to Christmas by this stage. Yeah. Um, so she handed me, I'll never forget eating that Turkish delight. It was so beautiful. And I don't <laughs> like chocolate unless it's white. Yeah. But I remember that Turkish delight. And so, and the orange Gatorades so much. And then I was moved to the ward maybe two or three days after that, once I was more settled. But the whole time, the nurses on 2F, back in the day, it was called 2F, mm. they were coming in and saying, you'll get through this, Kate. Like, they were just beautiful. Yeah. And to this day, those nurses are still they're more like family. Wow. They're absolutely beautiful. And, uh, yeah, so I remember getting on the ward, and when I was on the ward, I did stupid stuff. Like I thought I had the golfer VJ Singh in the bed next to me. <laughs> It wasn't. <laughs> um, I tried to get my hair straightener one day, so I could straighten my hair. Fell out of bed, hit the deck. <laughs> so then got moved to a private room. I must have. And is this also the this. press, or is yeah. this a side effect of this the coma or the, the press. press? Yeah, because I'm so out of it. Yeah. So I remember them saying about the second week of December, someone told me what had happened that you had hit, you'd had a car accident. But they were telling me I'd hit a tree and they're like, no, you ha- you hit a pole mm. and kept on going. So, and the pole fell over. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was really hard to digest. And then from there about probably the 10th of December, I got put into Caulfield Hospital for rehab. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I don't remember a lot of this time, but when I look back at videos, I've always been very public with what's going on. Mm. Um, And when I was in the coma, my parents and sister created a page called Donate for Kate. And that was because everyone was blowing their phones up and they couldn't reply to everyone. So if they put it all in one central spot, they could all just see that. So, yeah, they made Donate for Kate, the page, and would put updates on that. And when I actually go back and watch the videos, like there's a video of me trying to put a a jumper on because my brain injury is cognitive so I don't feel the ends of my fingertips and when I hold something I have to physically be looking at it because I can't tell you what I'm holding so a lot of the times I'll throw my mobile phone in the bin or I'll do something really silly because I just don't have that awareness anymore but my sense of smell is incredible so my vision and my touch were severely hindered, but my sense of smell like tripled. Really? So I can smell perfumes down the road. Wow. It can be good, but it can be very bad yeah, at times too. <laughs> but yeah, so I remember being in Caulfield and I was the youngest person in that hospital. Yeah. Everyone was elderly. Um, 
and I was learning to do basic things like walk, talk. I couldn't write my name. I couldn't tell you what um, the alphabet was or couldn't. I, I kept on thinking it was 2007. Wow. I kept on saying it was 2007 all the time. I was like a five-year-old girl when I spoke. I was very jittery, very broken, um, really immature sounding, like real. If you look at the photos on Donate for Kate when I first come out, I'm always got pigtails. You can just tell I'm not right. Yeah. And uh, watching those videos is is kind of hard to. And all that time you were still in renal failure. Yeah. So 2013 onwards, I had close to 150 admissions with wow. Alfred just complications like everything from amputations um cardiac arrests um you name it i've had it like it's crazy so the the next few years after that is that what the next few years looks like just lots of in and out of hospitals absolutely so i just vomited absolutely everything i would eat i went from being a healthy 60 kilos to 44 kilos um wearing nappies in the process of learning to walk and talk again. And at the same time, throughout 2014, um, I'd had gallbladder removed, tank off removed. Um, they wanted me to have a fistula, but I refused. Kept on saying, no, just permacap. I had septicemia, meningitis, like just so much. Every week there was some days I would come home from hospital for two or three hours and we'd be calling an ambulance again. Wow. It was just mental. Um, and my health was just so poor, so, so poor. And it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't stand eating. Um, so my family really tried to force food and things like that, but I just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, and then I had nerve damage in my stomach. So anything I did eat would sit there until I vomited up. So that was another dilemma. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so my, my dad at the time, he wasn't working because he'd hurt himself. And it was a blessing because I had someone there with me all the time so my poor dad had seen things he shouldn't have to have seen of his mid to late 20s daughter you know like showering me dressing me things that a dad shouldn't have to do yeah um but yeah but 2014 was a big year it was the first year that I attempted suicide I was so conflicted within my own mind I didn't want to tell anybody what was going on because I'd never had depression or anxiety before. Mm. I couldn't understand what these attacks were that I was having. Um, but my sister, she used to always slam the door. It was just, just very heavy when she opens and closes doors. And she used to slam mum and dad's front door every time she walked in. And I used to react to that. So loud noises would trigger what I was to find out, PTSD. So I used to black out when she would do this. Not all the time. Was this from the car accident? Yeah. yeah. This is all part of... I had developed, I didn't know, I hadn't mm. been diagnosed, but I had developed PTSD, depression and anxiety. And I didn't tell anyone because I already thought they thought I was stupid and I felt dumb. That's the best way to describe it. I felt I was so smart. I couldn't even write my name anymore and I couldn't dress myself. I had to lay my clothes out because I can't, with my brain injury, I can't predict what's coming next, if you know what I mean. So in order to get dressed every morning, I would lay out, um, underwear goes on first, socks go on, you know, and just go through the process. And it would take me a good 25 minutes just to get dressed because I was so exhausted. Yeah. I wasn't eating and, yeah, so that was, 2014 was a, a rough year. Rough year. Did the suicide attempt come from 
not wanting to fight anymore, not wanting to be here anymore? Or was it a burden? And every time I would say that, my family would say, you're not a burden. But, and I know that's what they have to, they're meant to say, but I wanted them to be real with me and go, you know what? Some days you really are. Or I needed someone to not sugarcoat everyone. I needed someone to just be up straight and just go, yeah, you are a burden, you know, or you're really frustrating me or you're really peeing me off, you know, but they weren't. And I didn't get that release. So I used to go outside and yell at trees or talk at trees. And I hadn't, I had met Zach, but we weren't dating or anything. So 2014 was a mixture of me not wanting to do dialysis. Um, I had moved in with my my auntie and I was actually living in the room that my grandmother died in. And I don't know why, but that really affected me. Um, and then with all these inner demons and not wanting them to think I was completely la-la, um, I broke my arm a few times quite badly me and my sister would fight over stupid stupid stuff we really drifted apart um I wasn't the same person I had a fight with my bestie and didn't speak to her anymore and everything just seemed to snowball and at the same time the ex that had left me when I had gotten sick had moved on and was sending nasty messages and it was just a big snowball and uh yeah so my first attempt was to swallow all my tablets every single one of them and uh my auntie obviously realised, or, or my mum did, I'm not sure, and I got sent up to the Alfred to stay there for a few days. Mm. Um, I got my arm fixed because I'd broken my arm. And they said, we want you to go into private rehab. And that's where I finally opened up and said what I was experiencing and I was diagnosed with having depression, um, anxiety and uh, PTSD. At the time, were you relieved or angry that I was, it was unsuccessful relieved I was relieved yeah absolutely because I now knew why when I get stressed out I would create sores pick up pick up myself or scratch myself or just do silly silly things and I would get so lost in my own mind fighting myself that I would push everyone away I wouldn't shower um yeah I was really isolating myself even more so. So when I got the diagnosis and they said, this is what it is, you're not crazy. Um, This is what I was treated by. And, yeah, it gave me coping mechanisms as well as obviously um, tablets to take and things and speaking to people. But it also gave my family an opportunity to speak as well, Mm. which we needed. Um, And, yes, I was in St. John of God for two and a half weeks, almost three weeks, and they were just incredible. Um, And you're still waiting for a transplant at this point too. Yeah, Yeah. but in that time, because of everything that had happened, broken arms, septicemia, I'd get taken off the list. So I spent more time off the list than I did on. And throughout my six years, sorry, eight years of bouncing on and off the list, being active and not, I have never been on it for more than six months consecutively. So, yeah. And when did the – so you were on the documentary Dying to Live. Yeah. When and how did that come about? Yeah, so I'd always followed the foundation Zadie's Rainbow Foundation, which is a foundation that works to inspire people on discussion surrounding organ and tissue donation. Um, Zadie was a seven-year-old girl in 2003 who – who at seven years old and and 22 days had a massive brain aneurysm and had told her parents a month earlier that she, if anything ever happened, she wanted to be an organ donor. 
So wow. she was the youngest girl at the time and she donated all her, well, most of her organs, mm. saved six people's lives. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'd always followed the Zadie Rainbow Foundation and, mm. you know, I just always had, I'd always been an organ donor as well. It was on my licence mm. and things like that and I admired Zadie's father, Alan, and um, he responded to me because I had sent him an email saying how touched I was by him and he actually responded and I was like, wow, like <laughs> this doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and he was telling me, you know, hold in there, you'll get your transplant, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then the documentary maker, Toddy, he had just finished a doco called Frack Man. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's incredible. No, hey. It's about the fracking in um North Queensland. Mm. So he did this documentary about the fracking and he'd finished it and he's like, what am I going to do next? And he saw Alan on the Today Show and he went, organ donation, I've got to go meet this bloke. Wow. So he went and met Alan and while he was there and and, um, got the story from Alan and that's all the start of the documentary. Mm. And uh, he said to Alan at the end, right, now I need some people that – have had are waiting things like that mm. that are affected by transplant and Alan said I've got a girl for you and he said Kate yeah um but yeah so was, that's how it all came apart and when I first told everyone I'm, I'm in a documentary that oh yeah you're in a documentary you know and I said no I'm seriously in a documentary mm. like it's full on um how long were they filming for three years yeah, wow. Yeah, I was going like, to say, it seemed like so they don't mention that on the documentary. I no. hadn't seen it until sort of earlier this week before I was interviewing you. And, oh, my God, if anyone listening to this hasn't watched it, you need to watch it. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's it's heavy, but it's it's good. But I didn't know that they'd been filming it for that long. Yeah. And I was going to say, did you know at the time how, not invasive, but how long that process would go for and how much they would be around and what sort of footage they would be getting. If you don't, if you haven't been in that world, it can be very overwhelming. Mm. Um, But I was so vocal with everything that was going on. I was trying to raise raise awareness. Um, I was doing a lot of work with um, Juvenile Diabetes Service Australia. Um, You know, I was doing the kidney walk every year and just trying to be active Mm. and getting people talking about what was happening because I was so young I was in my 20s and everyone's like no you can't be you can't be this sick and Mm. I think too because everything was happening so much and so frequently people start to think you're making it up and I'm not like that's what the doco shows too that it's literally one thing after another yeah but there were Toddy's part of the family. They all are. They're my doco family. Yeah, I can imagine it after three years. Mm, Yeah. Absolutely. There was a point in the documentary where you're having a conversation with your mum in the kitchen and there were multiple points over the documentary and now that I know it was filmed over three years, it it makes sense, but there were a lot of points where you, or one in particular, where you were saying to your mum that you're just done fighting, like you weren't fighting for you anymore and you didn't know what you were fighting for. How far in to your, well, not your journey, but how long had you been on the transplant waiting list at that point? Yeah, so that was 2016. So I'd only really been on it um, two years. Yeah. Yeah, but I had had enough. Like I was completely over it. Um, But then I would get complete random strangers through the Donate for Kate page that would message me with words of encouragement or just complete random strangers say that, you know, you you inspire us by 
by learning to walk and talk again. And mm. and then Alan started to get me active with the Zadies things. So yeah. I would start doing events um, and start speaking. And, you know, I've never had a problem with public speaking of drama student mm. stuff. So yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I had no problems, but I was really reluctant to do it because I still still felt dumb with my ABI and my mm. ABI is lifelong. Mm. The more tired I get, it comes out more. Yeah. Um, but I used to just think, I sounded dumb and then Alan's like, no, you're authentic. Like that's mm. why you might say the wrong word 10 times over or get stuck, but that's why you need to speak. Like this yeah. is what's going on. Have you watched the documentary back? No. And I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, I have not watched it since I had the surge, said transplant. Yeah. So obviously in the docker, I'm the only one that doesn't get it. Yeah. So I constantly have people messaging me worldwide, mm. um, asking me how I am, which is great. Mm. And actually I know the girl who got the first one. We do a lot of fundraising work together. Just last week we were in Mount Gambia together. Wow. She actually got my, she actually got her kidney on my birthday last year, the day that I died. Last year on my 32nd birthday, um, we had gotten Floki, my little husky, not so little anymore. <laughs> um, we'd got him on the Saturday night. The Sunday was my birthday. And we were going to take Floki to the market to go see mum and dad down Mornington. And I had woken up in the morning and I was just so wiped out. And I said to Zach, I just need to sleep. I need to sleep for a bit more. Um, he has always been very vigilant with checking my BSLs, blood pressure, um, checking my heart rate. Like he's, he's fantastic. He's a little doctor. So yeah, I just wasn't feeling well and Dr. Zach was all over it. I went back to sleep. Um, he said that I was the, my color was gray and that's what alerted him. Um, he did my blood pressure which I was doing quite regularly every day anyway, trying to stay on top of things. He did my blood pressure and it was 44 over 70. And he didn't even bother waking me up. He rang triple O straight away. Um, he had had to administer CPR on me the year before. I stopped breathing again and he'd had to, he was talked through it, how to give me CPR. Um, and the year before that, my parents, which is what you see in the documentary, had to administer CPR. So for the three years running, um, my body was giving up on me. And the doctors were saying, you know, you're now up to your seventh year of fighting. Um, you're not going very well. You need a transplant. And for the last two or three years, they were saying, you really need a transplant. And I was like, well, guys, I'm ready. It's on <laughs> you. And they're like, stop getting problems. That mean you're inactive because you, you're not fit. You won't, you won't be able to make it. So that was real. That was heavy. But I had, when I had the cardiac arrest, so Zach called Triple O and they had said to him, oh, it's going to be 10 to 15 minutes. And he's like, we can't fucking wait that long. Um, and so I was still awake at this stage, but I was just groaning. And the ambulance arrived 15 minutes. They walked in and they looked at me and they started doing um, like vital sign checks and things like that. And within two minutes, not even two minutes of being there, Sachs says that they, what they called their big boss man and said, we need a micro and we need it now. Um, and they said the micro was 10 to 15 minutes away. He said, we don't have three minutes. And this crazy, crazy um, micro arrived 
and he had it with a, a machine called a Lucas machine. I'd never heard of it. Not many people have. No. Um, so they had, he walked in and I literally was sitting up. He walked in. I apparently looked at him. I don't remember this day, but I looked at him and I went into cardiac arrest and mm. literally as he walked through the door. So Zach separated the couch and they were all working on me on the floor and Zach was hanging around for a bit, you know, obviously very distressed. Yeah. Um, and this Lucas machine that the market team bought is an automatic um, CPR machine. So the poor, you know, the two ambulance members that were there had worked on me and were getting tired, you know, yeah. they were getting so tired. But this machine that the microbrain did it all itself. So they were all working on me. By this stage, another paramedic arrived. And then I think maybe a fourth one arrived. I'm not entirely sure. Wow. Um, but that all the teams were working on me. And Zach's like, you know, it's been 15 minutes now. I've seen TV shows. They're going to call it. Mm. He couldn't handle being in the room anymore. And we had just bought a house together the, in July. And this was August 12th. And uh, we just bought our dog. And it was my birthday. So he walked into the garage and he called my parents and he couldn't get the words out. And they do markets. <laughs> <Can I listen laughs> to they, um, they do markets. They sell candles, which is something me and mum started doing together because I needed to learn to use my hands again. I didn't want to make cards. I wanted to make candles because <laughs> I spent so much money at dusk. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he rang my parents and um, they where they were, he couldn't get the words out and they could hear and he's got the, he's saying my mum was calm and she he's he's going to I don't know how much longer she's got she um she's not responding to anything they're doing they're shocking her nothing's happening there's more and more doctors and nurses here now mm. and uh so mum and dad jumped in the car the people like the other people other stallholders said go we'll look after it they were at a market in Mornington so it's a good hour and 20 minute drive to my house in Point Cook and they were gunning it the whole way on loudspeaker the whole way just waiting to hear mm. time of death and uh, by this stage my parents had called our family friends the corps and they're very very good family friends of ours and they had met mum and dad in that year because we we're all supposed to go to Bali together but I had got a blood clot on my heart and couldn't go but mum and dad still went even though they'd never met my friends and they'd all become friends yeah, and so mum rang the corpse and they told them what was happening can you get to Zach because he's not he's not coping yeah. and uh, they walked through the door they were still working on me and by this stage it was about 60 minutes so an hour they've been working on me shot 10 times because my heart just kept on going um yeah, they got me going and then um, it was 90 minutes later that the micro doctor that came said, all right, we can move her. Let's get her to the Alfred. She's stable enough. And then it was decided that they couldn't make it to the Alfred, so they sent me to Sunshine. Um, so they got me to Sunshine and that's where I first came to and everyone told me what had happened two days later. And I'm like, no way. And they're like, And you yes. first came to it two days later? That I can re recall. Yeah. But I kept on saying to mum and dad, where's Nan? And my mum and dad and everyone else in the room were like, you're so out of it, Kate. Nan died, like, in 2011. And I'm like, where's Nan? And I kept on saying, she came to me. I seen her. And when I had tried to digest what had happened and work it out in my own mind, I realised that I'd seen Nan. And she was 
walking with her back to me, but she was turned ever so slightly, like cheekily, cheeky looking at me. And I was reaching, but I remember this, the desperation of trying to reach her and not being able to reach her. I'm like, fucking turn around. Like, what are you doing? And, and I never touched her. And then when I told people about that weeks later, they're like, she was coming for you, but it's not your time. And if you had touched her, you would have gone. So the day that I had died, my birthday, um, the lady, good friend of mine now, Kimberly, who had the first ever SPK in uh, South Australia, got the transplant. So that was a real spin out how we've all been connected now. Like, it's very strange. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. all connected through one way or another. So I got to the Alfred and I was in the Alfred for four weeks and uh, that's when they started to talk to me about um, you need a pace, uh, defibrillator put in. The problem with a defibrillator is it's an artificial item and it cannot be removed once it's in. And it's, you know, the size of a deck of cards and it sits very, very shallow on like mm. quite, you can see it. You mm. can see it a lot. Mm. The idea behind the defibrillator is if I had another heart attack, it would shock me mm. and I wouldn't die. But the problem with that is because it's a foreign object, it meant I couldn't have a transplant for a long, long time. And when I was in that Alfred in that um, August, mm. the team had come in and they said, you've got 12 months to live. You know, we don't know how you've made it this far, but they're like, you really need a transplant, Kate. You're not going to see Christmas next year. Did you still have hope at that point? No. Absolutely not. I had resigned myself to the fact that not every fairy tale has a happy ending and maybe my purpose was to raise awareness and let people know that, you know, it doesn't always work out. I've battled for seven years and I've done everything the doctors have told me, but when you don't have your health, you've got nothing. You can be the richest person in the world, but nothing can give you health. Um, Yeah, so I had really resigned myself. My dad had as well that... We got 12 months. Mm. So I wrote the bucket list and uh, wrote a bucket list of things I wanted to do. Zach and I had got engaged the year before um, and we had spoken. I didn't want to get married while I was sick. And I said that if I get to March next year or this year, would have been March, let's just go to town hall or something. And I don't want to die single, if you know what I mean. Mm, I wanted to have a bit of peace and I really got in touch with my spiritual side got into the crystals like I was really trying to do everything holistically as well because I hate taking tablets and I was taking so many um it was decided I had signed the paperwork to have the defib put in because I thought what do I do if I put it in I can't have a transplant for at least 12 months I've only got 12 months Mm. um and it's a foreign object so you know there's a lot of complications that will arise Mm. so I thought you know what if I have if I try and hold on for 12 months I'm not going to get a transplant because it hasn't happened and I had completely resigned myself to the fact that's just not going to happen I have so many complications you know I'm I'm likely to get septus again or something will happen which will render me unwell and uh, yeah well if you hadn't been on it at this point for more than six months six months yeah yeah. the whole journey never Mm. been on it for longer than six months and you know people think that you know, once you're on it, you're number one, so you're the next person to be done. And it's not how it works. Yes, there is a list. Yes, you go up and down that list. But it's also do you match 
because if your tissues and things like them, blood types and that don't match the top of the list, well, you're going to reject it. So they go through the list as to see who's the best match from number one down. Mm. Obviously, I was top top five by mm. this stage because I yeah. simply from the, the duration that I'd been waiting and uh, I got I decided to have the defib. I thought if I get good 12 months, that's better than nothing. And if I try and wait for a transplant, which is never going to come, I will get sicker and sicker and sicker, probably have another heart attack and not survive it. So let's just get a good 12 months. So I wrote the bucket list, signed the paperwork. And in the meantime, my dad had been trying to get from Ambulance Victoria a printout of my ECG at the time, which would have shown them what was happening with my heart that the um, the vascular doctors wanted and mm. the cardies, cardiologists. Um, so he got it the day before I was supposed to have this thing put in. He got it, gave it to the team. The professor literally walked into the room as mum and dad were all saying their goodbyes as I go in to go have this defib done beside myself, like, I don't want to do this, but I have no choice. And uh, he walked in and he goes, I've had a look at your ECG. And he goes, in my opinion, it was caused by potassium. So at the time I was struggling to keep anything down. So I was living off peaches and custard. Peaches are full of potassium. Any stone fruit is. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't. So a spike in my potassium caused my heart to stop. So if he didn't see that printout, my dad didn't go get it, I would have had that defib put in and the 12 months would have expired this month. She actually got my, and she actually got her kidney very, very on my birthday last year, right the day now. that I died. And he said, in my opinion, a defib wouldn't have stopped it. It's diet related. Um, we need to get you back on the transplant list. And wow. so I got put back on the transplant list in, in September. I was wrapped, got to go home, got to see my dog, which I was convinced had forgotten me because <laughs> um, I'd spent four weeks in hospital, yeah. in a, literally in a glass box with mm. everyone looking at me. I missed the Melbourne premiere of the doco, but my whole doco family came to me. Like it was, it was really good how everything mm. panned out. And uh, like I said, I got very spiritual and got very heavily into my faith again. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so that was September and November – I got a phone call and they said, Kate, we've, we've got a, we've got a possible match. Um, come into the Monash. I rang mum and dad. They, they've got a kidney pancreas. Rang my sister who was still very distant from me, um, especially cause I was so, so sick. She was, mm. we were clashing a lot. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I, I was, Going into the Monash, we got all there. I looked so glamorous. I had done my hair. I was going to say, do you remember much about I do. that day? Like, where were you when yeah. you got the phone call? I was at dialysis. That's where I, the, mm. fir- the first phone call was at dialysis. Yeah. And I was asleep. I'd had my, had my thing over and the nurses came in and they're like, Kate, your phone's ringing, answer it. And I'm like, they never do that. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was so out of it. And um, it was warm weather. It was it was November, so I had my cook eye dress on, and I'm like, what, what? And sometimes my dress will split and expose my underwear. And I thought that was the problem. And so I spoke to the team and at the Monash, and they're like, we've possibly got a match. You need to finish up dialysis, which is perfect because it would have meant that I had my dialysis run. So I'm in the best condition mm. for transplant. Go home, pack a bag, which I already had packed. Mm. Um, I had that packed for the last five, six years. Yeah. And go. So I rang Zach. He was working in the country somewhere. I rang mum and dad and I said, you know, 
mum and dad were like, oh, we'll be there right now. And I'm like, no, just slow down. Like, <laughs> my mum was really, really, really fucking pushy that day. <laughs> you know, it's like, just relax, like, calm down. What and, was going through your head at this point? Um, honestly, it was, do I need to bring makeup? Do I need to bring my hair straightened up? <laughs> what will I want when I'm in there? Like, I know I'm going to be in there a long time. Was it guaranteed? Like, because you said no. it was possibly. So. They never say we've got a match. Mm. They say it's likely that we've got a match. So were your hopes through the roof or were you still yeah. thinking it might not happen? It was. I was I was ecstatic. I was. I rang everybody. So I rang, I, I messaged a couple of my close girlfriends. I rang my immediate family, my auntie, my sister, her family, my brother-in-law, mum, dad, Zach, and my besties, who I had become friends with again. And uh, I rang them and I said, you know, it's early days. I'm going in now. Um, I did full full glam makeup, blow-dried my hair. I had pink hair back then. And the doco team, I didn't realise, were waiting for me with cameras as we pulled up at the front of Monash. And here How I did am. they know? Did you call them? My mum. Uh-huh. My mum had rang them. So the two, the two doco people were in there like, what are you guys doing here? And they were filming everything. So I went off for my ECG of my heart. I went off to go get the bloods done. Um, everything that needed to be done, I got put in a room. Um, I came back and my sister had shown up because she normally won't show up with presents and Carter, my nephew, was there. Um, everyone was just so excited. My auntie was there. Everyone was there. The doco team were there filming and the doctor walked in and I thought it was a joke and he walked in and he said, I'm so sorry, Katie, and he had this smirk on his face and this professor is quite quirky anyway. Um, he said to me, I'm so sorry, Katie, but the donor didn't know they had pancreatic cancer, so we can't operate. And the room went quiet, but my mum just went, no. And everyone else just bopped, like dropped their heads. Zach was out having a bloody cigarette. And um, he walked in and my dad stopped him in the corridor and goes, it's not going ahead, mate. And he was like, what? And so, you know, I had the drips and everything put in. It didn't hit me. I thought, shit, I have to be strong for everybody because they're all, they're a mess. Like, my sister wouldn't look at me. Carter thought it was his fault because he was saying, you got a transplant, you know. Every Christmas since I've been sick, Carter, without being told to do this, will ask Santa for kidneys for Kitty. So I'm Kiki or Kitty to Carter. And uh, that year after the, the fake call, as we called it, it took me a couple of days to realise shit like this is shit and I got in a bit of a funk but then I perked back up again because Christmas is my favorite time of year and I was hosting Christmas um I just went on life as if that didn't even happen but I knew it had hit my mum and dad really hard my dad at that stage was like she's gone we're not getting her because how much longer would you have had left to live at this point so I had six months Six, oh no, seven, seven months. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I had Christmas. I hosted Christmas with Zach's family. Went down for Christmas, Boxing Day, for my family. Went away for New Year's. Like, just thought, shit, let's get as much stuff done as we can. Went away for to a Chuka for a weekend. And over that time, I had worn myself out so much. I was so exhausted because I can't walk very far. Mm. I get very, very tired very quickly. And, uh 
Yeah, so I thought that I was feeling so crappy because I'd just done way too much. Like, mm. But in my mind, it's like this is the last time I'll get to go camping. This is the last time I'll have Christmas. So I spent thousands. Like I went ridiculous for Christmas and <laughs> everyone, you know, if, if I hadn't written them a letter yet, I'd written them a letter which, you know, I, I, I wrote everyone's letter is on their favourite colour, paper or there's a photo of us mm. as well. And I wanted all my loved ones to, even though I struggled to write, I wanted them to, when I've died, to have something that I created, not the computer, that was my handwriting, that was my favourite photo of you and me. Um, I wanted them to be able to read and reflect and I wanted them to also know that I was okay. I was at peace with not surviving. You read some of the some of it out in the documentary it must have been they must have been filming while you were writing them yeah do you remember much about what you put in those letters yeah I just kept on saying to them that I had achieved so much because they always said that I could um my parents were quite poor when we were young and they worked their asses off to get a beautiful house in Mount Martha and be successful and have owned businesses and, you know, they worked their fucking asses off and they were great role models for me and my sister that you can have whatever you want with hard work. Um, I had a fine taste for expensive things. So I've always worked very hard because I like expensive shit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I had written that I was thankful um, that I was at peace, um, that I had pursued everything that I wanted to because they said that I could. Um, and I had also written that, you know, I've loved, I've laughed, I've cried, I've, I'm happy. Um, and at the same time all this was going on, probably a couple of months before, no, it was, it was 2018, um, I had a, my high primary school best friend first ever friend Tatiana she had a five-year-old son that desperately needed a double lung transplant and I kept on saying when I would pray and things like that I would say I've had 30 odd years he's had five let him have my spot let him get the transplant let him get the call um and then he got the call in November as well and I messaged him one day just out of the blue going hey Tat how's little Mason because I had just raised ten thousand dollars for him by hosting a superheroes day um, where we all dressed up as superheroes and ran around an obstacle course and we raised ten thousand dollars to get him an electric wheelchair and I was so fucking proud of myself I honestly was I was wrapped I had stormtroopers there and everything like it was crazy um so we raised the money and I messaged her and I said you know how much longer till he gets his thing and she goes where are you I'm like what do you mean where am I I'm I'm at Zach's I'm in I'm at my house Zach's in my house and she's like can you come to the Alfred it was about 11 o'clock at night and I'm like yeah why and she's like Mason got his lungs and I remember I first in tears because the problem with kids on the transplant list is they don't last very long. At the moment, there's 1,400 people on the list. Of those are approximately 150 kids. 50 of them won't see the next Christmas. And it's very hard when you're trying to digest the fact that the only way you're going to get a transplant is for someone to have their worst day of their life. So you're literally sitting there hoping that someone's family will no longer be whole so that you can get a second chance. And it's not even a cure. It's just it gives you more time and then you you battle those demons inside yourself you're like you can't believe you're hoping 
that someone will die. And at that stage, I was hoping a child would pass away and give my little mate the lungs that he needed. And he only had a few months left. So that's why we'd raise the money for him so he could run around with his brothers and do what kids his age should do. Yeah. And uh, I remember walking into that intensive care room at the Alfred and everyone thinks kids are only treated at the Royal Children's, but that's not the case. For things like these transplants, they go to the big hospitals. And he was just so little on so many machines and I just remember holding his hand and I was looking at him like he doesn't have an oxygen mask on and we'd just done all this stuff. We'd donate life in the AFL and we'd done all this media just a couple of months prior and and uh, just before I'd had, had my heart issues and she said, you know, he's, he's all right. And, um, yeah, I got to go in and see him and he was completely out of it, of course. But I got some beautiful photos and, you know, only her immediate family and I knew. And I felt so special and um, it was very confronting to see a little mate like, like that because I couldn't wipe the smile off my face. Yeah. And then we actually tracked down the donor family. Yeah, Tatiana did. It was quite obvious when you look back at the time. Um, there was, unfortunately, this beautiful little boy in New South Wales was hit by a reversing car in his driveway. It made f- headline news. I was going to say, I remember that. His name was Zane. Yeah. And... Uh, he was a perfect match. And the only other kid in Australia at that time that was needing lungs was a little girl. And it was just Mason and that little girl that needed this kind of transplant. And uh, the little girl was too sick and that's why it went to Mason. And so Zane had passed away and his family made the choice to donate his organs and Mason got them. And, you know, Tatiana and... Um, Mason's mum, they've all met one another. I think I'm pretty sure her name's Brooke and they were all over the news with um, uh, a current affair and, you know, the most ironic thing about the whole thing is when Zane died, they had a superhero's funeral and we'd just done a superhero's thing for Mason. It was, it was so crazy how the world just... It's like it was meant to be, you know, yeah. in such a shitty circumstance it was meant to be. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, I just remember walking out of that that intensive care room. I was there for a good 45 minutes and just so happy. And then I just kept on saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for listening to me and just I don't care, you know. Yeah. I'm going to make the next seven months awesome. And you know what? You don't know me. You don't know me. I'll last longer than seven months. Um, I'm stubborn. Like, <laughs> if you haven't realised yet, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not ready. And, and uh, yeah, so... I had New Year's was great and Christmas was great and gone up to Echuca and and then had Red Hot Summer Tour and I was doing everything, everything that I could do. Um, Every concert I could go to, I was going to it. Um, Zach was breaking me out of jail, as I would call hospital by that stage. (laughs) He'd break me out of jail and we'd say things like, oh, we're just going for dinner and a movie and we'd go to a concert. And we'd do something crazy. Me, my mum, my dad, my sister, we all went to Robbie Williams. My sister had to play Biggie Pack me up the stairs. But, um, yes, I was doing as much as I could. So when I felt really run down, in January I'm like it's just because you're pushing yourself so much so this day I was asleep and uh the 22nd of January and I had put my phone on silent and when I'm out I'm out so me and the dog were out like (laughs) laying on the couch completely zonked and uh I hear this tap 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 on my window kitty kitty answer the door kitty then these kids kitty kitty answer the door and I open the door and it's Zach's auntie 
and her kids. And they're like, quickie, quickie, you gotta ring your mum, ring your mum. And I'm like, what? Like, I was still so out of it because we didn't know I was sick at this stage with a, mm. a really bad blood infection. That's why I felt so run down. Mm. But we had no idea. And um, so I, I was still really hazy. And I lifted up my phone and I rang mum. And she's just bawling. And she's like, Kate, they've got one. They've got one. You've got to go. You've got to go now. Like, I fucking go. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And she's like, they've got you a transplant. Like, going nuts and and um you know we've spent an hour and a half trying to get in contact with you and you know the next thing they were going to do was ring the police which is Mm. what the hospitals say happens they'll ring the police and um yeah so Fiona that helped me through and I was so overwhelmed I remember looking at Fiona on the staircase and saying because I've got a two-story house now which is really hard when you're sick but anyway Mm. um I remember looking at her and saying you know it's not gonna go through and she said don't and she just kept on pushing me up the stairs and I got showered in front of her. I didn't care. I was just, and then the tears started and I was like, don't do this to me again. I can't, I can't cope if you do this again. And, uh, yeah, I, I, um, packed a bag and I packed a bag, a different bag to what it had packed. And I don't know why, but I changed bags. <laughs> yeah. And I packed the most inappropriate, sexy, lingerie-like <laughs> underwear and dresses. And I don't know where I thought I was going, but I packed so inappropriately. <laughs> I don't even think I had pajamas in there. Like, don't know what was going through my head. So I had a shower and everything, and everyone's like, you know, have a good shower because it's going to be a long time before you get another one. And and I walked in, and the TV cameras were there from Channel 9. And um, I don't remember any of this because I made I made a video to everyone for Donate for Kate because I'd taken over the page by now and I made a video letting everyone know I just got the call again and that we're on our way to the Monash. Um, I was still really hesitant to believe it was going to happen. I got taken up to the room and it was all very surreal because we'd been in this situation before and it didn't pan out the way we thought and... I went in at about 10 to 12 and I came out 5 or 6 a.m. The next morning came to recovery and whatever. I wasn't with it for the first day or two. They have you on ketamine, like you're out. Mm. Um, I remember my family, when they did talk to me a day or two after I was out and back on the um, ward, they said to me, you know, they couldn't recognize me and when I look at photos I was I had something like 20 something liters on me I I had six or seven chins like I couldn't understand who's that like what have you done to me and then I just remember the pain and that was the first thing I remember and my pain was and, and I'm having delusions as well at one stage I thought I was on that show I'm a celebrity get me out of here and I thought the only way I could get out of there was to pull my catheter out my gastric tube my drips and I'm on like seven or eight drips and I pulled the, the catheter out and the the gate nasal gastric tube and I buzzed the nurses and I said here I got him out and waving them up in the air and and said hey I got him out I can go home now and they're like okay what the <laughs> fuck have you done <laughs> and they called a met call and next thing I know I've got this whole team around me I'm like what's going on what's going on? why is there a crocodile in my room and they're like you're on ketamine yeah. you're not on a tv show and I'm like what's going on have I had a transplant 
And I would ask everyone that multiple times. Have I had a fucking transplant? And they're like, yes, you have. How many times do I have to tell you? You've had one. <laughs> and my parents were getting so short with me. Zach was just over it because yeah. I was like, have I really had a transplant? I had called Toddy, the film producer, mm. who was in Japan at the time. I called him and I said, you know, I'm going into transplant, blah, 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 blah. They're just taking out my maple tree and they're putting a new one in. <laughs> so like day five of transplant, you know, they finally got some more drugs into me. They've, they've weaned the ketamine down a bit. So I'm out a lot more. I get sent this Japanese maple tree <laughs> from the doco team. <laughs> like here you go Kate like best of luck I've got it at home now it's great (laughs) it's in my front yard but um yeah the the hallucin the hallucinogenic drug drugs Mm, like ketamine and that they make it so much harder so when I came to it took a good 10 days before my pain had calmed down till I could tolerate it Um, and I've got a high pain Mm. threshold but nothing's working and I was just screaming hallucinating wasn't sleeping I was on what they call a PSA where you minister your own um, but that would only last for 10 minutes so I would drift off for two minutes and have to press it again because the pain got so broke and I was just so swollen no one recognized me my arms were bigger than my legs um is that how you pictured it all going no And I didn't think that the mental side of things would be as bad as what they are. And they're horrific because you sit there and you're like, there's a family out there that are grieving. There's, that's all you think about is your donor straight away. And you're thinking, and here I am bitching because I'm in pain. They're in unimaginable pain and you can't take their pain away. And then, so I would, I would go in and out of being angry, sad, angry, sad. Have you ever... Or do you know anything about your donor family? No, but I have sent my letter. Um, I was told by the team. Um, in in Australia, it's up to the donor to send a letter. The, sorry, the the recipient to send the letter. Mm-hmm. It goes through Donate Life. Mm-hmm. It's all anonymous. Mm-hmm. They can know my first name. You can't tell them where you live or anything like that. Nothing that can identify you because they will send that letter to the family. If the family want to open it, they can, but it's 100% up to the family, Mm. which I find I can understand that they'd be struggling too, but I spend all my time raising awareness and letting people know and speaking to other people, Mm. everything I do with Zadies and, Mm. you know, everything the doco does and the doco has so much coming up. Um, I've been doing lots of media and just really trying to get like 3AW all over it and we're just trying to raise awareness and get people talking and you you don't have to be an organ donor but have that discussion so your family aren't in a waiting room with a doctor saying would you like to donate you know it's it's done what people don't realize in Australia too is your family have the final say so you might say you want to be a donor but if they don't agree you're not a donor. So that's the other thing we really try to drum into people. It's have the discussion, inspire discussion. That's it. That's it. And, um, yeah, so I think I completely forgot where that was going. <laughs> the letter to the donor family. So do you know yeah. if they've opened it? Or? No, I don't. And I really want to be able to, with all the work I do, I want to say that person's name. But the team have told me that it was quite possibly a young child 
under the age of 10. But yeah, I've just, I would love to be able to say my donor's name. I've actually saved my right arm tattoo wise for my donor. That depends on whether I'm allowed to. Yeah. There was a point in the documentary that absolutely got me. I mean, I was on the edge of tears the entire thing, but it was when Holly, the the lung recipient with CF, when she was talking, I'm going to tear up just thinking about it. You know, that's 100% real. It wasn't staged. It was completely coincidental. So just for context in there, there's a, and I hope everyone watches it, but there was a point in the documentary where one of the recipients had CF and she was talking at, um, I'm not actually sure what she was talking at. An organ donor recipient night where you where you thank the families and the donors. Yeah, and so there was someone in the audience that heard her story, and there was something in her story about the date that triggered them, and so they went up afterwards and sort of clarified what the date sister. was, and it was their sister. Yeah, and it's so funny. Like in it, there's this big phenomenon with with transplantees um, where you inherit a characteristic from your donor, and it is this phenomenon that they've been researching and things like that. And Holly didn't really like the colour red, and like the family say in that doco, we buried her in a red dress. And when they met Holly, she's in a red dress. dress. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's crazy because. Since my transplant, I am obsessed with chicken nuggets. And if I do have um, an organ from a child, you know, it's not confirmed that it is a child, but if I do have one from a child, what do kids eat? It's chicken nuggets. Yeah. And I am obsessed, like me and Floki will get. before? No. I would have the occasional chicken yeah. nugget here and there. But, you know, I've always been very healthy. My diet has changed dramatically. Like yeah. I can't tolerate soft drinks. I love coffee. I'm addicted <laughs> to coffee. Um, absolutely addicted to coffee. Some people think my eyes have changed colour a little bit. Yeah. Um, but chicken nuggets. But chicken nuggets. I can't get past chicken nuggets. It's so weird. Like it got to a point where I've had to say to the dog, we are not getting chicken nuggets today. <laughs> like maybe once a week we'll get yeah. 24 nuggets and he gets 12 and I have about eight. Zach will have three or four. <laughs> I love that the dog gets most of the oh, chicken nuggets. Oh, he does. <laughs> he, he gets everything. He's our son. Oh, wow. Um, what would you say to your donor family if you got the chance to meet them like Holly oh, did? You know, thank you doesn't begin to do justice there aren't enough words so I would rather show them that every single day I'm doing something about organ donation I am getting people to talk like doing this podcast you know I'm doing something to keep it relevant and get people talking and make it less of a taboo subject and you know like look at our road toll road toll already this year like if they were all organ donors, we've got 1,400 people in Australia waiting. Mm. Um, what are some of the other stats? I know you've dropped bits of them here and there, but and not to put you on the spot if you don't know them exactly, but I'm sure you do. I know a lot. <laughs> what, are, what are the stats on, on organ donation in Australia and how many people are waiting, how many people die waiting? One person dies every week waiting for a transplant. Um, Australia is ranked 17th in the world for organ donation. We've got the UK that just decided to have opt-out. We've got so many countries, some of them third world, that have this system um, that we so desperately need. Um, Last year or the year before, forgive me, I'm not entirely sure what year it was, but there was over 500 500 donors that could have donated but it didn't go ahead. 500 people is basically a quarter of our list, a little bit, you know, a little bit under a quarter of our list. Is that because family have said no No. at the last minute? Yeah, they don't know what their wishes were. Um, 
So that's why we're really trying to drum into people's heads. At the moment, South Australia, you still have it on your licence, but it will be phased out very soon. We're trying to drum into people's head. DonateLife.com.au. With your Medicare card, it takes less than 30 seconds. Sign up, become an organ donor, but don't just become an organ donor. Tell your family. Mm. If you don't want to be an organ donor, tell your family because mm. There's nothing more horrible than a family sitting there fighting amongst themselves going, what would they have wanted? What do we do? And one person can save up to seven to ten lives. It's incredible or can change the lives of seven to ten people. I signed up the minute I finished that documentary. <laughs> Good girl. Yes, I have always said that I wanted to be a long donor and I made that clear with my family or at least I thought I did whether or not I then it's exactly like you said I probably said it five years ago or ten years ago it's not a regular topic of conversation that comes up but I think one of the reasons I always put it off was because I remember probably five or ten years ago I got a form yeah and I looked at this form and I was like fuck it's too hard yeah as dumb as that sounds no I know it's so silly but I was like it's too hard I've got to send it I've got to post it I don't know I didn't have a Medicare card at the time it was because those were my parents and it was just all too hard and Mm -hmm. I went online the other day and I was actually really annoyed at myself when I realized it took 37 seconds I filled in the the page that's on the website and I was like this will just be like the first page because this is like 11 p.m. night I'm like oh you know maybe I'll have to finish it off another day I click like submit and it's done and it's done yeah I was expecting like seven more pages yeah crazy it is crazy yeah absolutely and a lot of people don't realize as well that um you know it's one thing to obviously have have you self-listed as a donor but letting people know what your wishes are a lot of people think that because they're too old that they can't donate um because you know they've been a drinker or a smoker they can't donate that's all ludicrous like you can donate Mm. even if it's tissue a cornea um you know blood like there's so many things that one person, you get a lot of people, I do a lot of Lions Club meetings and most of them are older men and um, they're like, oh, you know, I've got nothing worth having or I'm a drinker so they won't want my liver and that's all not true. Um, and then some people think, oh, they just cut you up and throw you in the bin and that it could be further from the truth. I've seen a donor go through and the guard of honour that the nurses and the um, doctors create is just it's incredibly moving it's you know a donor is looked at as a hero and they are they're a hero um that family have made the most unselfish decision at one of the highest most horrific circumstances you know going through extreme grief to help someone they don't even know without ever knowing if they'll get to know them because it is up to the recipient to make first contact the donor family can't do it and then it's up to the donor family to reply so my letter has been sent for a month now I don't know if I ever will hear from them but I really want to because I'm so incredibly thankful and eternally grateful and I intend on showing it in my actions, not just the words that I speak. And if we do make, like, I'm a firm believer, like we did with gay marriage, it almost has to be a social movement. We need to get people putting pressure on the parliaments who don't want to talk about things that not everyone's comfortable about. This new TV show, Taboo, fantastic like it gets people talking about hard issues and bringing them to life and that's where I used to say to my friends they'd always say to me you know oh I feel so sick but I'm not going to complain to you and I'm like 
why fucking complain to me I know <laughs> you feel like shit yeah. yeah I feel like shit and yeah my story is 10 times worse but that doesn't take away that you're having a bad day or and I, I get that a lot from people who message me going I shouldn't complain my life's nothing like yours and I'm like yeah but you haven't been tested like me I've been tested mm-hmm. you have it's all relevant you know you're all suffering one way or another like don't take away from it but yeah it's just I don't know it's all about inspiring discussion and that's the only way I think with the social movement that we can get knocked out system we need to pressure the governments and get people talk because we're a lazy country too. Yeah. we're always yeah. like oh, I'll get to it yeah, like you know? fucking form that yeah. I left on the bench for like yeah. five oh, years yeah. get to it one day you know yeah. I'll tick that box another day it's not really going to affect mm. me and well look at Sadie she was seven years old and made that decision a month before she passed away she didn't know she was going to die but she made that decision and um yeah, I mean, if a seven-year-old girl can do it, why can't everyone else? Absolutely. Or just let people know. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Kate, I like to finish these episodes with five rapid-fire questions. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Uh, you were talking before about your bucket list. What's still on it? Okay, so uh, travelling, because I can't travel just yet. Um, my donor angel tattoo, which I've booked in. Um, and the third item on my list, which I wanted to achieve the top three, was to do up an old XYGT, which I started a month ago. <laughs> so I've just got to travel now. Yeah, <laughs> and fantastic. then Zach and I are planning our wedding for next year, amazing. which is something we can do. And then we can think about babies. Amazing. Yes. So exciting. Um, and number two, what do you love most about life? Um, it's different every single day. Just when you think you're having a hard day, tomorrow's a new day and you can start all over again. And, you know, it's, everyone says it's little things in life that aren't, that are free, that you, you admire the most and love the most and cherish the most, which is so true. Uh, number three, what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? I go straight downstairs, put on the kettle, sit there with the dog. <laughs> I grab my hundreds of pills that i am be taking that day. It's not hundreds, but I'm exaggerating, but I take pills regularly. So I get my medicines ready and I look outside. I look outside and I just look from either our veranda over and just smile or breathe in the air because I never used to be able to do that. Or I was always too nauseous to walk outside or, you know, I just do stuff. <laughs> just appreciating exactly the new day exactly uh number four if you could be famous for anything what would it be and why changing the constitution changing legislation getting people to have an opt-out system and bringing us from 17th in the world at least into the top five which is something we need to do absolutely and the lucky last one what's next for kate hansen well we've got the wedding next year um definitely going to be traveling over new years which where do you is, want to go we were going to do hawaii but i think we're going to stick to bali <laughs> um go somewhere close that isn't too far um but yeah definitely travel wedding and uh yeah think about starting a family at the end of next year which i'm allowed to do amazing i was yes. going to say is there anything with that that does that come with its own risks and, absolutely yeah. so um the medications i'm on will take about three months to get out of my system which mm-hmm. is changing to something that won't deform babies mm-hmm. um so i'll be on these anti-rejection drugs for the rest of my life and as i said you know we get checked 
very regularly um, to make sure that we're not going into rejection, which is something that can happen so easily. Um, so, yeah, that's, it's always, you know, in the back of your mind, rejection, rejection, rejection. But I just want to plan my wedding. <laughs> Amazing. I think that's all we have time for. That's a really nice place to end it on a really positive note and all the exciting things you've got coming out, which I'm so excited for you to do. And I can I will do that now. following your journey. Oh, and closely. I will be playing a game of netball with my sister. Yes. Yes, definitely. Maybe about another 12 Grudge months. Much. Yeah. And then she'll be on my team that time. Oh, <laughs> Amazing. Well, I... I'm so, so glad we managed to get this in. Thank you for coming and thank you for donating me your time today. No worries at um, all. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It was a great chat. I managed to keep it together. I didn't need any issues, which is rare <laughs> for me. We both so did well. I was both <laughs> struggling at one point yeah. or a couple of points, but thank you so much. I'm so appreciative. It was lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Ashley. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. I do not know how I made it through that without needing a box of tissues. For everyone who knows me, you know I am a crier. And there were so many times where I looked across at Kate and she had tears in her eyes, which brought tears to my eyes. And I cannot tell you how moving that experience was sitting across the table from her and hearing her share her story. If you haven't seen the documentary Dying to Live, you can find it on iTunes. I'll pop the details for that in the show notes. You can also follow Kate's journey on Facebook at Donate for Kate. Um, As always, if you are loving this episode or if you are loving the podcast in general, which I really hope you are, please take a screenshot of your phone right now, share it on Instagram, tag me at accept average podcast which is also where you can find all the updates on who I'm interviewing and when each episode drops of course if you haven't already and it's something that you believe in and something that you want to do join the organ donation registry as I said in there when I was talking to Kate it's something that I put off for so long purely because I thought it was too hard it was something I always wanted to do but I never took the time to join the registry and it literally takes about 36 seconds it is a very small part of your life but can absolutely change someone else's so if that's not for you at least have the conversation with your family either way whether you do or you don't make sure someone or preferably multiple people in your life know your wishes i'll be back in your ears next week with another inspiring story for you so stay tuned see you then bye guys bye guys